Well, let's, let's turn in our Bibles to Galatians chapter 4. We're going to look at verses 4 and 5 there in Galatians. And um, uh, if you are just showed up, if you're a guest with us this morning, we welcome you. And <clears throat> we're in the middle of a six-part series about coming out of darkness and into light, how the Lord does that in our lives and what that means. Um, so much has gone before that that today's uh, meditation will be built upon. But if you um, didn't bring a Bible, you can grab one of the ones that's in the back of the seat in front of you. Galatians 4 is on page 1386. And I'll read verses 4 and 5. But when the fullness of the time came, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, so that he might redeem those who were under the law, that we might receive the adoption as sons. Let me read it again. But when the fullness of the time came, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, so that he might redeem those who were under the law, that we might receive the adoption as sons. You can infer from this, this verse, these two verses here and see clearly that there's a problem. There apparently is a big problem that uh, we humans have. Uh, it says that God sent his son there in verse 4, so that in verse 5, so that he would redeem us, that he would redeem us out of a problem. That, that word redeem in, in uh, the way it was used in those days referred uh, to a uh, slave market where uh, slaves were trapped and they were redeemed out. There was a price paid for them and they were bought out of slavery. They were in a situation where um, they were the ones who were the slaves and they didn't have the wherewithal to get themselves free. A payment had to be made from somebody else on their behalf, and then they would, well, unfortunately for them, most of the time that meant they're just a slave of someone else. But if someone was benevolent and wanted to set them free, they would pay the ransom price, and they would be redeemed and set free. And you see, another part of the problem, you see it also there in verse 4. It says, when the fullness of the time came, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, excuse me, and then verse 5, so that he might redeem those who were under the law. We've been speaking about that the last couple weeks, about what that means, that there is the law of God, which is really just an expression of who he is and his character, and that it's, it's a description of those who are rightly related to this God and who he is. How would, how would a creature of his live that reflects who he is? And there's the law of God. But as we've noted, we've all broken that law, uh, which means we've all lived contrary to the character of God. And we've incurred judgment on ourselves. Because we're lawbreakers, that means just the justice of God needs to be fulfilled. That means there's a punishment coming. And so there we are, under the law, guilty, before God, slaves to this problem that the Bible calls sin. But God makes an answer. He sends his son, Jesus Christ. You notice there in verse 4, when the fullness of the time came, God sent forth his son. 
And so these two verses are saying that we've got a problem, but the answer to the problem is in Jesus Christ. And I'd like to ask and then answer the question this morning. Why is Jesus Christ the answer? In all that we've been talking about these last three weeks, we've been describing in in one sense mainly the problem that we have with sin and before God. But the answer, the scripture says, is Jesus Christ. And why, why is that? Why is he the answer to our problem? Well, first of all, he's the answer because Jesus Christ is God and man. Jesus Christ is both God and man. Look again at verse 4. It says, when the fullness of the time came, God sent forth his son, born of a woman. Now, this is interesting. I mean, if you read it quick, you'll miss this. But it's saying that God sent forth his son. So his son already existed. Unlike you and I, when we don't exist until we're conceived in the womb. But, but, but God's son already existed. He's existent already. And then God then sends him, sends him to earth, but not as he is But in a miraculous, wondrous way, he is then born of a woman. Born of a woman. Jesus existed as God before coming to earth, but then he became human. Let's think on this for a minute. God sent forth his son. That means that uh, he existed prior but he was not existing in the, in the um, state of being a creature. He was, not, he was not a creature. He was a creator. And in heaven, he was not experiencing any kind of limiting or negative effects of humanity. He existed eternally. Our God is a triune God, Father, Son, and Spirit. And so the Son, one person of the Trinity. And of course, we can't put our heads around this completely, but he exists without limitation. He's unacquainted with griefs. He's never been pinched by poverty at all in in his existence. He's never undergone reproach. He's never tempted by the devil. He was never sensible of any physical pain. There, There was no break in the relationship of intimacy and of pure love and fellowship between him and the Father. There was no impressions of the Father's wrath on him for all eternity. There was matchless happiness and intimacy and purity of delight and constancy of delight in the Godhead. And yet, and that's where he, that's where he existed and as he existed. And then it says, God sent forth his son. So the one member of the Trinity then becomes human for it says there born of a woman born under the law and so he left all of that experience to take upon himself our humanity in john chapter 1 verse 14 it says and the word and if you if we took time to show you uh, in in that chapter the word word is referring to jesus It says, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we saw his glory, 
glory as of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. He didn't shed his deity so that he's no longer God, but he voluntarily restricted the independent exercise of some of his attributes and he becomes a human being. So now Jesus, fully God, becomes fully human. And being true man and true God in one person, Jesus Christ is the only one who is fit now to be a mediator between human beings and God. Amen? He now is uniquely qualified. There is no other that can be the mediator. In 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 5 and 6, it says, For there is one God and one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all. The mediator. Think of this. There's a problem between us as God's creatures, human beings. There's a big problem between us and our creator, who is the judge of all the universe. Who can mediate that problem? Um, Could an angel do it? Well, an angel couldn't because, for one thing, the curse, the judgment of sin fell on Adam and on Adam's, Adam's descendants. That's you and me. This problem of sin <clears throat> is a human problem. <clears throat> it's not an angel problem. It's a human problem. The judgment's fallen on Adam and his descendants. It must be from within his descendants that the mediator comes. The judgment must be paid, in other words, by those of Adam's race. And an angel is not that. And plus, if an angel, well, an angel is finite, a finite being, and he has finite worth. Well, what about God? Could God just from heaven be the mediator for himself and between him and us? Well, he has infinite worth, but he is unable to die in his existence, his eternal existence as he was and as the Father and Spirit are, he, he cannot in some way suffer pain and the punishment. He can't, he can't do that. He is not human. Well, what if there was a man, just a man, who is somehow managed to live a holy and a pure and a sinless life? First of all, that's impossible. But let's just say there was one. Well, that one man would only be a man and his worth would only be one person's worth. And if he were to stand in as a mediator between God and others, he could only stand in for one. He couldn't stand in for more. No, you see, Jesus Christ as God and as man is the only one fit to be a mediator between us and God. Where being man, he can stand in and suffer the the punishment, the judgment, the sentence that was rendered by the court of heaven on human beings. He can stand in as a man, as a descendant of Adam. He can stand in and take the punishment. And as the sinless son of God, his worth is infinite. And so he can pay. His payment counts for more than one. It counts for as many as he wishes. Amen. 
So he, being the true man and the true God, is uniquely qualified to be the mediator. There is no other mediator. Muhammad is not the mediator. Buddha is not the mediator. Mary is not the mediator. There is no other. There is one God-man, and it is Jesus Christ. And so we're asking the question, why is he the answer to our problem? Well, because he is God-man. But secondly, it's because Jesus Christ substituted himself for us. Look again at Galatians 4, 4 and 5. But when the fullness of the time came, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, so that he might redeem those who were under the law. As I said before, that word redeem is loaded with the idea of a payment. A payment is being made. What's that payment? Turn, turn back just to chapter 3, verse 13. I actually will read beginning at verse 10. So it's Galatians 3 verse 10. For as many as are of the works of the law. In other words, you were, were trying our hardest to keep God's law are under a curse. That's judgment. It's a sentence of judgment for it is written. Cursed is everyone who does not abide by all the things written in the book of the law to perform them. We're cursed, we're punished when we're trying to to earn our a right relationship with God by keeping the law. The reason we're cursed or we're punished is because we all fall short. Verse 11. Now that no one is justified by the law. Justified. Don't get hung up by that word. Justified just means made right with God. We're, we're, everything's reconciled with God. We're, we're clean before God. He says, no one is justified by the law of God, by the law before God. That is evident for the righteous man shall live by faith. However, the law is not of faith. On the, on the contrary, he who practices them shall live by them. And then we get to verse 13. Christ redeemed us. Here's that word again, redeem. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. You see, in Galatians 4, verse 5, it says that God sent his son to redeem us. A payment had to be made to the justice of God. In Galatians 3.13, Paul is explaining that Christ became that payment. He himself, as he hung on that tree, that's a reference to the cross, his death on the cross. He himself is the payment. He paid the debt that we owed to the justice of God, he paid it with his very life. You and I couldn't pay it, but he paid it for us. Amen? Amen. But what did that payment mean to Jesus? Well, first of all, it meant leaving heaven. And we've already mentioned that. All of what his existence was and meant in heaven, he left it. To come here on earth. Secondly, it meant being restricted to the limitations of humanity. Thirdly, it meant, and here's the crux of the matter, 
is what did that payment mean to Jesus? It meant experiencing the wrath of God. The wrath of God. We've mentioned it before. That's the, it's justice based. It's not God losing his temper, but it's God in his justice meeting out a punishment to the sinner. But it's an awful thing for our sin is great before God. We've sinned against him. In scripture, it mentions that this wrath is awful. In Nahum verse one, chapter one, verse six, it says, who can stand before his indignation? Who can endure the burning of his anger? His wrath is poured out like fire and the rocks are broken up by him. It's an image of fire and the earthquake. And he's saying that, that the wrath of God is to become the subject and the object of God's indignation. It's an awful wrath. But what Jesus suffered was not only the awful wrath of God, it was the pure wrath of God. In Romans 8.32, it says, He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him over for us all. You see, when Jesus was hanging on the cross, he was receiving from God the Father the wrath of God, and there was not one drop of mercy in it. Not one drop. It says he did not spare his son. It was awful wrath. It was pure, undiluted wrath. Had Christ been spared, you and I would not have been spared. If he had not felt full wrath, we would not feel full mercy. One of the old saints said this, if our mercies must be pure mercies and our glory in heaven, pure and unmixed glory, then the wrath which he suffered must be pure and unmixed wrath. It was an awful wrath he felt on the cross and it was pure and undiluted wrath. And not only that, it was all the wrath for the sinner. Not one portion of wrath that was due to the sinner was left unfelt by Christ. In Psalm 75, 8, says, For a cup is in the hand of the Lord, and the wine foams. It is well mixed, and he, meaning God, pours out of this. Surely all the wicked of the earth must drain and drink down its dregs. This is often the image used in the scripture about the wrath of God. It's like a cup that the one who's being punished must drink it and must drink it down to the last drop. And Isaiah 51, 17 says, You who have drunk from the Lord's hand the cup of his anger, the chalice of reeling you have drained to the dregs. That means to the last drop. And there on the cross, Jesus Christ was substituting himself for the sinner. Though he's not broken the law, he substitutes himself for the lawbreaker. And he feels in the lawbreaker's place in her place in his place he takes the awful wrath of god undiluted with no mercy in it and he takes it all all of it and what else did the payment mean to jesus well it meant being abandoned by his father there as he hangs on the cross 
It says that finally in Matthew 27, he says, finally at the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani. That is my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He cries out in his abandonment by the father. Nothing like this. We, we can't even imagine what this is for there was the eternal perfect love relationship from all eternity God existed in a perf- in perfection and love and now the father turns his back on the son and the son suffers the wrath and the abandonment of the father this meant inexpressible agony hanging on the cross as a substitute for sinners Listen in Isaiah chapter 53, there's, there was a prophecy there about Christ. And as I read these few verses, just three, listen, I want you to hear the idea of substitution, that the, that the servant of God, the, the Christ who is to come, is going to substitute himself. But listen also for the agony, the description of pain. It says, beginning in verse 4, <clears throat> Surely our griefs he himself bore. And our sorrows he carried. Yet we ourselves esteemed him stricken, smitten of God and afflicted. But he was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening for our well-being fell upon him. And by his scourging, we are healed. All of us like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. But the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him. You see, he, what we deserved, he took. What he took, he took for us. But it cost him grief and sorrow. He was stricken and smitten. He was pierced and crushed. He was scourged. And it all fell on him. And that's what it meant for Jesus Christ to make that ransom payment. He left heaven. He was restricted to the limitations of humanity. He experienced the wrath of God, the abandonment of his father, and inexpressible agony. Now, what does all this mean to us? What do we do with this? I want to mention to you some implications of this for our lives. Is is Jesus Christ the God-man, and did he ransom us from sin by dying in our place on the cross? Well then, surely you see the depth of the evil of sin. My friend, we, we diminish what sin really is. We think somehow it's not as bad as it is. But his suffering is equal to your sin debt. His agony and abandonment and the wrath that he felt was what you were supposed to feel and is what your sin deserves. You deserve to be forsaken and abandoned by God. You deserve to drink the dregs of God's wrath. 
There's no injustice with God. If, if this picture seems overwhelming to you, or perhaps maybe God has overstated the problem, then your concept of who God is and your concept of what sin is, is deficient. Our sin deserved that. And that is how bad our sin is. But secondly, is Jesus Christ the God-man? And did he ransom us from sin by dying in our place on the cross? Well, then surely you see the greatness of the love of God. John 3.16, it says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. Here's the great love of God. What love is this that, that leaves heaven and takes on flesh and suffers wrath all for those who do not deserve it? The greatness of the love of God. It's inexpressible. In Romans 5, verse 8, it says, But God demonstrates his love toward us, in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. We, we didn't deserve this, did we? Who, who deserves it? Raise your hand. We didn't deserve this, and yet God in his love does this for us. You know, he didn't, he didn't die for you. Because you're pretty, or because you're smart, or because you're funny, or because you're hardworking. He didn't die for you because you're not as bad as the people around you. You are a sinner who has broken the law of God and deserves his wrath, but God sent his son to stand in for you because of his love. Unbelievable love. And he didn't die for you because he needs you. He didn't die for you because he was lonely. He's eternally satisfied in, in, his, in himself. In his, the triune God has fellowship within himself. Three persons. God doesn't need us. We're not, by saving us, he is not fulfilling a need in himself. He is eternally satisfied in himself or he would not be God. He doesn't need you. You've broken his law and deserve his punishment, but in love, because he loves you, he sends his son to stand in for you. The greatness, the greatness of the love of God. Is Jesus Christ the God-man? And did he ransom us from sin by dying on our place on the cross? Well, then surely you see the greatness of, And the glory of the wisdom of God. The wisdom of God. In Christ, on the cross, the mercy of God and the justice of God are both satisfied. The mercy of God is freely given and the justice of God is satisfied. Do you realize that without the God-man on the cross, the two of these could not be reconciled in our forgiveness? God's mercy and God's justice, they both could not be fulfilled in any other way than that the God-man goes to the cross and substitutes himself for us. 
He could not, God could not just forgive. He couldn't just look at, look at you and just, just forgive you. He couldn't do that because of his justice. And yet, God, if he were to just punish, there would be no expression of his mercy. How could these two be carried out at the same time? One way, one way. It's by God the Son substituting himself, satisfying the justice of God and making a route clear now for the mercy of God to flow to us. Amen? We can magnify the wisdom of God. In Romans chapter 11, after the Apostle Paul had spoken for quite a while about the wonders of salvation, he reaches verse 33, and it's as if he just erupts in praise, and he says, Oh, the depths of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and unfathomable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord, or who became his counselor? Or who has first given to him that it might be paid back to him again? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. Oh, I like how he starts. The depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and the knowledge of God. The one way of salvation, of finding forgiveness, exalts the wisdom of God and humbles us. Is Jesus Christ the God-man? And did he ransom us from sin by dying on, our, on the cross in our place? Well, then surely you see the folly of thinking that you can do anything that contributes to your own redemption. If you wish, turn, you can turn to Hebrews chapter 10, verses 11 and 12. It's on page 1428. It's a great passage where, where there's a comparison being made about the Old Testament sacrificial system and Jesus Christ and his death on the cross. About the Old Testament priest and Christ as our new head uh, chief priest, high priest. We, can't, we don't have time to look at the whole context, but here in verse 11, so it's Hebrews chapter 10, verse 11. It says, every priest meaning the Old Testament priest, stands daily ministering and offering time after time the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But he, having offered one sacrifice for sins for all time, sat down at the right hand of God. Let me ask you a question. Can you notice the difference in terms of the frequency of the offering between the Old Testament priest and Jesus? Do you see that there? Look at verse 11. How often do the, were the Old Testament priests making their offerings? It says daily, time and again, right? How often does Jesus make his sacrifice? Once. Verse 11. But he, having offered one sacrifice for sins for all time. Now let me ask you another question. I've asked it before. Some of you may remember. What are the postures in these two verses? The physical postures. What's the posture of the priests in uh, verse 11? They're standing. Do you know why they're standing? Well, the the altar is about this high. The altar is about as, as high as this 
pulpit. It was, it was a big thing. It's not a hibachi down here. So they slaughter the animal and they have to stand. They're standing and they're putting the animals on the altar. That's why it says the priest is standing day after day. Day after day, he's standing. What's the posture of Jesus in verse 12? He sat down. Why did he sit down? Because there's no more work to do. The, the work of dying for your sin, the work of paying your sin debt, the work of satisfying the justice of God for the sinner, it's over. It's done. And so he sits down. The work of satisfying the wrath of God is done in Jesus Christ. He offers the this, this sacrifice once for all times, and he never has to do it again. Amen? And so what folly is it in your heart and mind when you think that you've got to do something? Surely I must have to do something to add to this equation to make things work out with God. No, you don't. That's exactly how bad off you are. You can add nothing. And when you think that you can add something, what you're saying is Jesus shouldn't be sitting. He should still be standing. There's still more work to be done. But he sat down and declared that the work is over. You, my friend, have nothing to offer to him. And as long as you and your heart think that there's something in you that you can somehow add to what Jesus did so that you can be made right with God, you haven't seen it yet. You haven't seen it that you're bankrupt before God. And you haven't seen what Christ did yet. You haven't understood that it's all, it's everything. Everything that needed done, he did it. He did it for me. Is Jesus Christ the God-man? And did he ransom us from sin by dying in our place on the cross? Well then, surely you must see the importance of faith. Of faith. Turn to Galatians again. I should have warned you. Keep your finger there. Galatians chapter 2 verse 16. And you see, if Jesus is done, why you turn there? Galatians 2 16. If Jesus has done everything that needed done, if he's made the payment complete, if there's nothing that I can do, any of my goodness, I can't add it to that. I, no, no, no. I, he's paid it all. Well, then why is it that some people never find forgiveness and others do? Well, from one angle, the reason is this. It's the issue of faith. Some people have never gone to Christ and cast themselves on Christ and believed in him so as to receive what he did on the cross for them. And others have. Galatians chapter 2 verse 16. Nevertheless, knowing this, that a man is not justified. Again, that word justified just means made right with God, declared to be righteous with God. You're okay with God. A man is not justified by the works of the law. In other words, by doing good things and hoping that that gets you brownie points with God. But through faith in Christ Jesus. Amen? Faith. Friends, is Jesus the God-man and did he pay your debt on the cross? Well then, do you see the importance of faith? You see, it's not what you do that gains you forgiveness. 
It's what Christ did. So what's up to you is to believe in Jesus Christ in a way that now all that he did on the cross now counts for you. Amen? Do you see the importance of faith? Faith is the hand that reaches out and receives the gift from God. Faith is not the hand that works to accomplish the forgiveness. Christ did that. Faith is just the hand that reaches out and takes what God gives. If God gives us breath, it's my plan to speak more detail about faith next week. Well, is Jesus Christ the God-man? And did he ransom us from sin by dying in our place on the cross? Well, then, my friend, we're left really with one question, and that is, have you trusted him? Have you trusted Jesus Christ? Have you cast aside all your confidence on yourself and what good you can do or be and just cast yourself completely on Jesus Christ and said, I trust you for the forgiveness of my sins and I receive that as a gift. Have you done that? You can do that. As we move towards communion, I just want to, um, just want to say that for those of us who have found faith in Christ and know this forgiveness, this time at the table is a table to remember what he has done. These elements here remind us of his death for us and all that we've just talked about, that he stood in for us. And so we partake with great gratefulness. And by partaking, we're saying, by, by, by eating and drinking, we're saying, it's Jesus and his death for me. That's where my hope is. That's where my trust is. It's just in him. It's not in the emblems. It's not in the bread and the cup. That would be, that would be perverting and turning upside down the whole meaning. That, that's not saving us. That's just uh, reminding us of what does save us. It's Christ and what he did on the cross. But if you, if you have never trusted him, if you've never cast yourself on Christ, then I invite you to do so even now as we take the time to be quiet before, this, before partaking, that you yourself look up to God and call on him and trust him.